My name is Dan Warren. I'm one of the pastors down at Christ PCA down in Temecula. Um, you know, going to school at Westminster and then really being involved in San Diego area churches, the OC side of the presbytery is like the wild unknown to me. So it's nice to, to meet some of you up here and be able to open the word with you this morning. I was just thinking um, our service starts at 11 down in Temecula. We're meeting outdoors right now, hopefully going inside soon, but it's so nice to me. Um, I know it's going to get hot out here, but it's so nostalgic. I grew up on the mission field uh, in Mexico, and many of the first sermons that I preached were like under mango trees in an orchard, and that's kind of a hazard when you're preaching, you know, as they start ripening and falling, so as long as I don't hit my head on this, I think that's the only danger here. Um, maybe one of the, not one of the smartest places to go when it's your first time at a, at a new church preaching, we're going to go to the book of Revelation, but I promise it's not a wild section in the book, uh, other than some really wildly amazing grace that we find here. Uh, go ahead and open, if you would, with me to Revelation 1, 5 to 6. <clears throat> Revelation 1, 5 to 6. This is John's opening doxology to the book. And we're just going to be looking at part of it this morning. Revelation 1, 5 to 6, and it's there in your bulletin. Let me go ahead and read that, and then we'll pray together. Revelation 1, 5-6 says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word this morning. Uh, Father, as our Savior prayed for us, we pray, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and His grace, and by the power of Your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace more and more into the image of Your Son. In the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Before you're gripped by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a doxological arrhythmia. That is to say that your heart beats wildly out of rhythm. It beats horribly out of sync with the way that you were created to live. You have an acute and dangerous doxology disorder. What is that? What is doxology? Doxology is one of those words you don't really bump into outside of a worship service, right? Uh, from doxologia, a Greek word, doxa meaning glory, and logia, a word or a saying. Uh, it's a word of glory. We could call this glory speak, a doxology. Uh, you find this um, question and answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, that begins with a word of glory or a word about glory. Uh, question and answer one says, What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So our chief end, the main thing that our lives are to point at through and through is glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. But left to yourself... You don't enjoy God very much because you find it hard to glorify God very much. You were created to live a doxology life, a giving glory to God life. Uh, that's the rhythm that your heart was created to beat. But every one of us has a problem doing that until grace gets a hold of us. Day in and day out, lifting our eyes from looking inward to ourselves and turning us to look upward to the true King of glory. And these doxologies, like the one we just read in Revelation 1, uh, which we'll be looking at this morning, these doxologies, they're like pacemakers for our heart. They help us to meditate on the glory of God, and as, they, as we do that, 
they reorient our hearts. They reorient us in this doxological direction, in this glory to God way of life that we were always meant to live. And that, that doxology that we read this morning uh, is, is full of these truths that help to focus us on the glory of God. And this first half, especially in the glory of God in saving us from our sins, freeing us from our sins by His grace. It's this explosion of praise to Jesus at the beginning of Revelation. Let me read it again. John says, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. And that's the one of whom John says, To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So just from this first line of the doxology, this short first line, I want you to see a couple of things, three things in fact, about uh, your Savior. These are three truths that you need to know about yourself and about Jesus if you're going to live and believe in the Lord in, in order to give all glory to God. So these are the first, uh, these are the three truths that you need to know and believe about yourself. First, you were held captive by sin. Second, you were set free by Jesus' blood. And third, your Savior Jesus loves you. So three truths about yourself if you're going to live a life to God's glory, this doxology way of life that we were created to live. Uh, the first truth, the first truth about yourself that you need to know is that you were held captive by sin. John says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So this doxology is said in the experience of a Christian, of those who know Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, then you need to grasp the sin that still holds you captive and the sin from which you still need to be set free. And Christian, here this morning, you need to grasp the sin that held you captive. But you can only be set free from something that held you captive, right? That much is obvious. And you need to know what this sin was, what it was that held you captive, and the fact that you were bound by it with no way of escaping its grip. It's worth noting, even though we're not going to go very far into the book of Revelation this morning, uh, that the theme of idolatry is a major theme in Revelation. Uh, the worthlessness of worshiping idols, the worthlessness of idolatry, that's how Revelation largely describes sin in, in the human heart, the sin that binds us. Uh, the church at Pergamum and Thyatira is called out for practicing idolatry in Revelation 2. And then at the end of the seven trumpets of judgment in Revelation 9, uh, this, this depiction of judgment sent out upon the God-opposing church persecuting world, uh, we read of people clinging to their idols to the very end, even in the face of judgment. In the chapters that follow, that judgment is brought out upon them. Revelation 12 traces the ancient battle between the church and the dragon, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the ancient serpent, whose opening salvo against God's whole program, remember the story in Genesis 3, was to introduce idolatry. We read this idea of, uh, of Adam and Eve um, really wanting to become like God. It was this idolatrous proposal. We read about that in Revelation 12 as well, this battle of idolatry. We could go on and on and on, but you get the idea. This, this sin that holds captive the human heart is the sin of idolatry. At least that's the terms that Revelation, uh, the terms in which Revelation speaks of it. So when I say your fundamental spiritual problem, that spiritual disorder that you have, is a doxology problem. It's another way of saying that we all struggle with worshiping idols. We all struggle with idolatry. Sin is any way in which we're walking out of step with or living in violation of God's law. And because we give God glory by uh, following His commandments, by obeying His law, then all sin is a glory problem. 
All sin is doxology pointed in the wrong direction. Glory given to something other than God. In other words, all sin is idolatry. And all idolatry, because it's worship according to our terms, directed to whatever we want to worship or to whomever we want to worship, all idolatry ultimately lifts up ourselves. It elevates ourselves and glorifies me over God and His glory. The word of glory which we were created to give to God, we we don't give that glory to God when it's directed somewhere else. Notice what the Apostle Paul says about where this word of glory is directed when when we don't believe. In our unbelief, where where does this glory point? Romans 1.21 says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So our disordered hearts so often direct the glory that's due to God uh, toward other things, toward anything but God. At the end of the day, when we direct glory away from God, we are directing it inward to ourselves. We're exchanging God's glory for our own. So, that's a lot of talk about idolatry and this idea of glory pointed in the wrong direction, but what are some of the specific ways that we tend to do this? What are some of the ways that we exchange God's glory for our own? What are these sins specifically that held us captive? The sins that you need to be freed from by Jesus. I think we can organize our thoughts about this uh, by looking at two ways our hearts are bent inward, glorifying ourselves. Two ways that our hearts are bent towards... um, what we want to do and how we want to run our lives versus submitting ourselves to King Jesus. The first sinful bent of your heart is this. You are bent towards self-rule. Self-rule. You don't have to be a systematic theologian to get this. If you're a parent, just look across the breakfast table, right? From the moment that your baby can uh, sling oatmeal on the floor with a spoon, despite you saying, stop that, don't do that anymore, right? Right? they reveal what the Protestant reformer Martin Luther called ambitio divinitatis, this ambition to be God. See, all this time you thought your baby was just babbling. It's really just Latin. It's ambitio divinitatis, this ambition to be God, this divine ambition, as Luther put it. We're all adept at building towers of Babel to our own glory from the moment we can babble, rivaling the rule of God in our hearts and lives. How do we do this? How does this show up? It's not just babies being rebellious. It's uh, indulging the gossiping co-worker with just one more little juicy that you happen to know. It's when you slice your son or daughter just a little sharper with your words rather than shutting the shouting match in anger down. It's choosing to click further into the website instead of Xing out the window. All of this and many, many more things you can add to that list yourself. All of this flies in the face of God's glory. It flies in the face of God's good ways that He's created for you to walk in. We read it in Titus, right? We have been created to devote ourselves to good works, and this is the good way that God has made for us. But all of this is your self-rule at work. It's that deadly doxological arrhythmia, that disordered, sinful bent of your heart towards self-rule, toward beating to the rhythm of your own way, sending glory inward instead of upward, to the God of the universe, to the King of glory who alone deserves our service. Remember, these sins hold the unbeliever captive, right? We'll see in a moment that you, Christian, have been freed from these sins by Jesus' blood. 
But these ways that our hearts are sinfully bent and bound due to our sin, it's still a problem. It's still a problem for us even after we believe. None of us should hear that list that I read or other lists that we can come up with and say, boy, I sure am glad that that can't happen to me anymore. I'm sure I'm glad that I can't be tempted by those things. Our freedom from sin has to do with the penalty of sin, has to do with the power of sin, but the presence of sin isn't done away with just because we believe. We wouldn't confess our sins week after week in in a service like this and receive forgiveness if that were the case. We're still sinfully bent towards self-rule. But that is, that is just one of the ways that we're sinfully bent away from giving God glory. The, the second sinful bent of your heart that I want to mention to you, maybe a little less obvious than the first one, I think we tend to think of sin as rebellion, right? Doing those kinds of things. But another way that it's a little less obvious when we seek our own glory is when we're devoted to self-rescue. So not just self-rule, but self-rescue. This may not seem like sin, but it's a subtle way that you fool yourself into thinking that you're no longer in the grip of God ambition, when in reality you're just painting over your idolatry with good performance. Again, I want to go back to Luther, since his idea of how we all have this ambition, this God ambition, is so helpful here. He, he includes not just rebellion, but our self-righteousness in this category. This way that you try to rescue yourself by being good. He includes this under the idea of God ambition. Self-rescue is just as much a doxology problem as overt rebellion is. Self-rescue is looking inward for a Savior instead of upward to the Savior who deserves our glory and praise. Luther says that to rely on self-righteousness to rescue us is tantamount to making an idol of ourselves. He says it's trying to capture heaven by force, which is to, den- which is to deny God and set oneself up in the place of God. See that struggle? Have you ever felt that struggle? Have you sensed that struggle even as a Christian? I think we're all bent towards self-rescue even after we believe. Be careful not to live your Christian life as if it were a self-rescue operation. Luther once wrote in a letter to his friend George Spilatin. This was the friend who kidnapped him and hid him away in Wartburg Castle when his enemies were trying to catch him during the Reformation. And he wrote this in, in a letter to George Spilatin, which was so helpful. He says, Be strong in the Lord, and on my behalf, continuously admonish Philip. That's another friend of George and Luther's, uh, Philip Melanchthon, their fellow reformer. He says, admonish Philip, tell Philip not to become like God, but to fight that innate ambition to be like God, which was planted in us in paradise by the devil. This doesn't do us any good. It drove Adam from paradise, and it alone also drives us away and drives peace away from us. In summary, we are to be men and not God. It will not be otherwise, or eternal anxiety and affliction will be your reward. See, Luther has self-righteous attempts at self-rescue in mind here. Not just rebellion, but trying to prove ourselves worthy by our good works. Do you want the recipe for being an anxious and afflicted Christian? Keep trying to rescue yourself by good works. You've been freed from that. That's what the doxology says. We have been set free from that. We have been set free from trying to rescue ourselves. It's like our sin, even this self-rescue, our sin is this miserable cell and we walk right back into the cell and we clank the door shut behind us. When we've been freed from it, the door has been thrown open. 
At times we all become like that toddler that proudly declares, I can do it myself, right? That's what self-rescue is like. The Gospel of Grace says, you can't do it. You can't do it. And besides being a really heinous act of sinful pride when we try to rescue ourselves, to be honest, your attempts at self-rescue are pretty hilarious. They're pretty hilarious. They're comical. They're as comical as they are sinful. When you try to rescue yourself, you're like that little hamster in the pet store. You know the one, right? Bless his heart, squeaking along like he was the fastest cheetah that ever lived. But really, he's just putting on this hilarious show going nowhere in his little hamster wheel. He's just going and going and going. And that's you when you're trying to save yourself. That's you doing your self-rescue thing. And to a world full of squeaking hamster wheels, the Creator cries out from the throne, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 22. These words, incidentally, this section in Isaiah is talking about idolatry and the foolishness of worshiping something other than God. These words are God's words to you in your idolatrous and comical attempt at saving yourself. God says, give it up. Give it up. Step out of the hamster wheel. Give it up. That should be the biggest relief in the world. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you have to hear this. And you have to run to the one who calls you saying, turn to me and be saved. This is the most amazing news in the world. God says, don't turn to yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't do it. And don't even try before you come to me. Turn to me and be saved. Your self-rule condemns you and so does your self-rescue. Give glory to the only one who can save you. God alone can save you, not yourself. So, the first truth you need to know about yourself is that you were held captive by sin. Ruling yourself, trying to rescue yourself. Going back now to Revelation 1, 5-6, with this sin that held us captive defined and our God ambitions exposed, how do we overcome this doxology disorder, this idolatry, this out-of-spiritual-rhythm way of living, of self-ruling and self-rescuing? On the one hand, it seeks our own pleasure. On the other hand, it seeks our own salvation. Well, the truth that you need to know about yourself is this. You were set free by Jesus' blood. If you're a Christian, you have been set free from all of this. John says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is what's offered in the Gospel. If you're a Christian, you've received it. If you're not a Christian, this is what is held out to you. To be set free by Jesus' blood. God Himself, in the person of the Son, entered this world as a flesh and blood man. And though He was truly God, as true flesh and blood man, He lived the perfect glory to God life that you never lived. He was perfectly obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that blood which He shed on the cross, it was shed for you. It was poured out in your place. It freed you. It freed you from your God ambition from ruling yourself, from trying to rescue yourself, it freed you from your sin. Hendrickson says in his great little commentary on the book of Revelation, he says, Notice that believers are said to be loosed, not merely washed from their sins. In that one observation, properly understood, there is material for a whole sermon. Well, maybe not a whole sermon this morning, um, but we're certainly going to look at this for just a moment because it's so powerful, this news and this, this one word of the doxology. If you're reading from the King James, probably not. If you're reading from the New King James, maybe the Greek manuscripts behind those translations of Revelation say that we've been washed of our sins. 
Yet in this translation, and the one that Hendrickson's working from, it says, we've been freed from or loosed from our sins. Which is it? Loosed or freed? The verb is really loosed. It's this, it's this verb that breaks chains. It unlocks cuffs. It sets captives free. Washed or freed, it's not a different that shakes our... It doesn't shake our faith in Scripture or really worry us very much. It's true either way. But what wonderful news is this, that we have been freed from our sins like the chains falling off of a prisoner's wrists. We've been freed from sin, freed from it. Not just washed clean of it, as true as that is, we've been set free. We've been focusing on this doxology uh, pretty narrowly, but if you step back just a, a verse or two, there's some context that's really helpful. Uh, for understanding what's happening here. In verse 5, the first half of the verse, uh, it says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. We're really interested in that second description of Jesus. The firstborn of the dead. It has everything to do with being set free from our sin, from being loosed from those chains. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is risen. He is alive forevermore. And what does that mean? Well, Jesus says what it means in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Those keys are the keys to your freedom. Those are the keys that release you from your captivity. We said it before, it's not freedom from the presence of sin. We're always going to deal with sin being present in our lives. We, we wouldn't confess over and over and receive forgiveness over and over if that wasn't the case. But it's freedom from sin's penalty and sin's power. By His blood, it's true, you have been washed. That theme comes up over and over in Revelation. But because that blood was shed for you, the firstborn from the dead has freed you from sin's penalty. It's freed you from sin's power. You see, before putting your faith in Christ, you were chained to sin as a slave that could only do what sin wanted. It had complete power over you. And you were chained to sin like a prisoner, awaiting final sentencing. The penalty which you awaited was death. Jesus holds the keys. The death and resurrection of Christ gives him the keys to walk right past slave master sin, right past the prison guard of death, to put the key in the lock and to unlock your chains, to open the door of your cell and set you free. We have been freed from our sins by his blood. The death and resurrection of the perfect, sinless Son of God have made Him the holder of the keys. Not you. He holds the keys. He unlocks the prison door of doxology pointed in the wrong direction. He sets you free from a life of idolatry and sets you on the course of life that gives glory to Him, freed from sin by His blood. So if you're here this morning and you don't know what it's like to be freed from sin, you don't know the joy of this freedom from sin, there is a way to be right with God this morning. And it's not by anything you can do, it's by turning to the one who holds the keys and receiving salvation and freedom from Him this morning. Maybe this is your 500th Sunday sitting in a church service and you realize that you are a self-rescuer. You're, you're a self-ruler. You've been living this, this life that trusts in your own good works to save you. You also need to turn to the one who holds the keys and give it up. And give it up. The door swings wide open for anyone who turns to Jesus for freedom from their sins. He will set you free. Christian, 
those of you who, who know this and believe this and are seeking to live the doxology life, this glory to God life that we've been called to live, of course we still sin, but we've been freed from the claims that sin has over us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How does grasping all of this, grasping the blood that set you free, show up in the way that you live your life? Have you thought about that? Simply put, you've been set free to turn your heart toward God in worship. This penalty isn't hanging over your head. You can worship God in peace. You can worship God with your lips. You can worship God with your life on Sunday and on Tuesday afternoon. Living life to the glory of God. You've been freed by His blood to point all of your doxology in the right direction. So know that you were held captive by sin. That's important. That's the first truth. Know also that you were set free by Jesus' blood. Set free from your sins by His blood shed for you. There's one final thing that you need to grasp. A final truth about yourself that you need to know. And it's this. Your Savior Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. The first two truths about yourself that you need to grasp are past tense. He freed you from your sin. Right? He freed you by, He freed you from your, you were held captive by your sin and he freed you from that sin by his blood. But this is a present tense truth that I want to think about with you. Present tense, Jesus loves you. In fact, that's the way John writes it in this doxology. He says to him who loves us and freed us from our sins. But it's present tense, Jesus loves you now today. In this very moment, we need to understand this present tense truth. The men and women that John wrote to in Revelation, they desperately needed to know that they had a Savior who loves them. They were under pressure to conform to the world, to align their hearts to the rhythm of God-opposing rebellion. And as they held to their faith in Jesus, they were persecuted, harassed. Their life was made miserable. That's the external pressure that they were under, and maybe that sounds all too familiar to us living in the present day. But there was that, that's the external pressure, but there was also an internal reason why they needed to know that Jesus loves them. Because just like you and me, they didn't always believe that Jesus loved them because they didn't believe they were very lovable to Jesus. They didn't believe they were the kind of person that Jesus... And the reason I know that is because they were human beings just like you and me. They had this internal pressure to know that they had a Savior who loved them. In this book that maybe some of you have been reading by Dane Ortland that just came out, Gentle and Lowly, um, Ortland describes normal Christians as those who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that badly again? As those who have that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. As those who know God loves us, but suspect we have deeply disappointed Him, who have told others of the love of Christ, yet wonder as if wonder if as for us, he harbors mild resentment. Does that describe how you relate to God? Your internal story about how God relates to you? I read that and think, man, I must be a normal Christian then. I wonder if that rings true for you. Like maybe God harbors mild resentment. Is that the way you live every day of your Christian life? This doxology is exactly what we need to hear in a moment like that. To him who loves us. This is the only place in the New Testament where we read these words. The love of God is spoken of a lot in the past tense for us, but this is the present, present tense promise of God's love. John 3.16, what does it say? For God so loved the world, right? Past tense. Ephesians 2.4-5 But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. Past tense. Beautiful truths, 
but they're past tense truths. Galatians 2.20, speaking of Christ's love, but again, past tense. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Revelation 5.8 comes close. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is his love for us shown in the past tense. But it's here where John says, to him who loves us. It's a promise we need today when we doubt that God loves us. It's the promise of the kids' song, right? That we almost feel silly singing or silly saying, but we need to know it's true. Jesus loves me. That's the truth of this doxology. Jesus loves me, this I know. For Revelation 1, 5b tells me so. The Bible tells me so. Right here, the Bible says that right now Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. That's a pacemaker for our doxology, right? That sets us back on the right course to know that even when we're way out there living glory to who knows what, Jesus loves me. And he pulls me back in because he's freed me from my sins by his blood. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for showing us your love in Jesus, who loves us, who shed his blood to set us free to live, pointing all glory to you in everything. Open the eyes of those captive in their sins to see Jesus standing there with the keys of grace to set them free. Keep those of us who believe from the idols of self-rule and self-rescue. Make us aware in every moment of every day of that simple, sustaining truth, Jesus loves me. In the name of him who loves us, we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.